Plot twists. We're obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story where it takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, comedy and impressions lover. And I'm Fran, super fan of reality TV and rom-coms. And we're from now. And throughout this series, we're going to be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about their favourite plot twists, both on and off screen. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems that you've never heard before. Contain spoilers. Obviously. Well, actually, it's just me, Fran's away on holiday, but our guest this week, it's a cracker, a true thespian, a man of the theatre, who's taken that talent to the big and small screen. I'm thinking CIA counter-terrorism director David Estes in Homeland, the Martian Manhunter John Jones in Supergirl, or maybe even just Captain Poison in Blood Diamond, David Harewood. It's so brilliant to see one of our British acting treasures doing so well on the international stage, but you may not know his incredible personal journey he actually released a documentary a few years ago my psychosis and me where essentially he opened up to the world about his experiences of a psychotic breakdown which i suppose inadvertently has really played an important role in talking about mental illness and he's been highly commended for his approach is this sort of fearless self-analysis and really bringing this conversation to light and i should say just a quick heads up this conversation includes discussions around mental illness racism some strong language, including use of the N-word. I would implore you to listen, though. It is so compelling what he has to say and a fascinating insight into his own journey. It's going to be really interesting. So let's get to the man himself. This is David Harewood on Plot Twist. David Harewood, what a pleasure. Now, some people might think, where's he going to start here? Is he going to go with Homeland, maybe Supergirl? Mm. I wanted to uh, call out Robin Hood because I really enjoyed <laughs> that series. God. Brother Tuck, he was a great character. Yeah, that's a strange one because I mean, I got a call one rainy Wednesday afternoon saying, um, "How would I fancy playing Fry Tuck?" And you kind of think you know, Fry Tuck's normally rather fat, bold. <laughs> How's that going to work? And they sort of said, "You know, we want to do something different." And and it was exciting. You know, it's very rare in my career where producers have sort of thought, "Let's do," unlike America. Let's do something different. You know, let's think outside the box. I, I was sort of, I was sort of dying for that. It's happened a lot on stage for me, but not on screen. So when I thought about it, I thought that's a really outside the box idea, and really enjoyed it. The idea of making a sort of kung fu kicking, karate kicking sort of yeah. action man friar, and it was great. But unfortunately, it didn't quite have the legs. And after a cracking start, I sort of spent the rest of the series lurking about in the back of shop <laughs> which was really frustrating i can imagine uh yeah i've been quite full-on some of those scenes i think the horse riding as well that must have been pretty tough a lot of the cast said they found that quite full-on always That's lie be... always lie when they say can you you say yes you know can you <laughs> can you sword fight yes can you parachute yes can you horse ride absolutely even though i hadn't <laughs> ridden a horse since i was about 15 but yeah. Yeah, it was I mean it was great fun and I don't think I actually got to do that but a lot of the guys you know really did and it was really good fun sort of um lollocking about in the Hungarian forest was quite good fun. It had a hell of a cast as well the series. You think of Richard Armitage and mm. uh Keith Allen and 
And because we had Harry Lloyd on the podcast, and I said the same thing about Robin Hood up front, and I think he was a bit surprised, thinking I might talk about Game of Thrones. But uh, it did have a hell of a cast. It was a great series. Yeah, Jonas Armstrong was Robin Hood. Yeah. I got yeah. there in season three. It, it wasn't so much of a happy camp, which was unfortunate. And is that because of like, the is it long filming schedule? But was it in Hungary as well? I don't know. I just don't think the boys were all that keen. I think things had been promised that didn't materialise. Or, oh, okay. or something had happened and they weren't all together the sort of happiest bunch of merry men. <laughs> well, it didn't come across on screen, but uh, no, it's interesting. I suppose that, you know, those things can certainly happen. Hmm. I want to start with a few random questions mm-hmm. we usually start with and then we'll ask our first plot twist question. But when I think of you, I think of a true thespian. That's in a, in a type. Mm-hmm. I, I grip my hands when I say a true thespian. I like That's that. This I is like good. Yeah. Big, bit of fisting That's, going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, we had Martin Sheen on the podcast. Oh, um, Mar- yeah. I love Martin. He's, yes. he's a, a brilliant actor and he's had mm. some incredible scenes. And I just, uh, it came to me the other day. He was talking about his, his scenes in Apocalypse Now with Marlon Brando. And it's the oh, one wow. experience that would wow. have been. Wow. So my question is to you, if you could have a one-to-one scene from anyone from cinematic history, wow. who would you want to be opposite? That's a good one. I would have loved to have been in a scene with Sidney Poitier. I would love to have been. Great choice. That's my, well, he was the one that kind of inspired me to be an actor. He was you a know, pioneer. He was a great pioneer. When he passed a couple of weeks ago, it was really moving for me because, you know, he was the one guy that sort of inspired me to think I could be even though even before I was an actor, you know, I always remember that great scene in um, in the heat of the night when yes. the racist white guy slaps him in the face and he just slaps him back immediately. And it was like there was a gasp in our house. We'd just never seen anything like that. You know, and this was a time growing up in the 60s and 70s when... when you wouldn't um, have seen that, right? You that wouldn't have, have seen totally, that. Totally uh, and, you know, and growing up, you know, I say in the 75 was... Uh, you know, it was a scary time for a young black kid in Birmingham because, you know, a, yeah. a simple walk to the shops would be, could kind of get you chased. You have, always had to have your wits about you because you just never never knew, you know, where sort of the attack was going to come from. So I was kind of, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of scared as a yeah. young black kid on the streets of Birmingham. But seeing that and seeing how he was so strong and fearless in the face of, you know, we all, we all knew that American racism was far more violent. You know, you could literally get lynched over there. So for him to show that sort of strength was incredibly inspirational. As I say, the cheers around the house when he did that was kind of deafening because it was sort of a strike back against the system, you know, yes. the system yeah. that, that yeah. I needed as a kid. Yeah, that must have been wonderful, actually, to have yeah, seen that. And I suppose figures like him and I think like my hero up on the wall here, Muhammad Ali, like mm. those sort of figures in that time in the 70s at the height of their powers, mm. you know, there must have been, there must have been something really quite magical about that, you know. Just magical, but just inspirational, you know, you yeah. know James Brown on Black and I'm Proud, you know, all, all, all of, you know, the civil rights, which we've never had in our country, you know, we've never had a, a proper civil rights movement because, of course, we're the most open, tolerant society you laugh, you may laugh, uh, but you know that's what they say. But it, tolerance isn't enough when it comes to racism, and people sort of have to stand up and proclaim that it's wrong, and that's not really happened. You know, there's a lot of people who acknowledge the truth about racism in this country, but there's a lot of people who don't. 
as I said, the whole civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, all those figures about kind of black emancipation, black freedom, black expression, were all American. You know, we looked to them for strength and for inspiration. And it was great, as you said, it was great to, I remember, always remember that wonderful Parkinson interview with Muhammad Ali and, yes, and, and yes. Parkey, yeah. where he was really, really saying some quite out there things and Parkinson yeah. was denying, how dare you say that we're racist and white people are the devil. I, I just remember Muhammad Ali was being really honest about it, called white people the blue eyed devil. And you could see Parkinson was a little bit unnerved by this whole conversation. But we were in the house sort of going, this is great, this is fantastic. And it was really sort of saying what we felt and what we, what you know, this, this, this sense that we weren't really taken seriously or that we were sort of marginalized in, in the UK. So yeah, you know, those figures in the seventies were legendary and a real inspiration to a young man like me. I always think someone asked me about why is Ali your hero? And I, I struggled initially and I was almost embarrassed and I thought about it. I thought actually it's, it's courage. And I suppose that Absolutely. kind of represents part of what, what you said. Mm. I want to come back to that, but you mentioned about growing up and I wanted to sort of explore what did you love about growing up where you did in Birmingham? The innocence of it all really it, amongst my generation, there was a lot of diversity. Mm. So, you know, I was playing soccer or I was always in a team, whether it was in the cricket team, the basketball team, the rugby team, the football team, the athletics team. And it was really diverse. And we sort of grew up in this bubble. You know, we knew there were, there were racists and the skinheads chased us. But I grew up at a time when sort of, we didn't know it was diversity. We just thought, you know, it doesn't matter that you're black, I'm black and you're white, we're just mates. Yeah. I, I always remember that sort of sense of camaraderie that I had with my real mates. My best mate was Italian. I sat next to a couple of Irish kids, you know, a couple of Jamaican kids, a couple of Indian kids. And we were all just sort of young lads and just having a ball and just laughing. School was all about laughing. And I think I must have missed three or four days of my entire school life because I just loved going to school. I loved the camaraderie of my mates and just laughing as much as I could through the day, probably at the expense of my education, because you know, I wasn't particularly the sharpest <laughs> kid in the box, but I was sort of called, of us. called disruptive. You know, I was a disruptive kid because I was always messing around. I guess that's where the acting came from and the sort of larking about came from. But I was just so, so it was joyous. Being at school was joyous. It was just great. I loved it, loved it. So there's always a performer in you. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Even before I knew it, you know. In fact, as I said, it was a teacher's idea that I became an actor. How, how old were you when that happened? I was 16, so I was about four or five weeks away from um, leaving school. And I always remember sort of going down to the school careers library. There was a careers library where you could <laughs> yeah. flick through engineer, you know, elephant trainer. You know, you just go through all the alphabet just to, you know, just see what you wanted to do. And nothing was really sparking my imagination. Nothing. Yeah. I was kind of worried. You know, I'd been doing class plays and school plays. And, and, and I always remember I sort of, um, I got a phone call from one of my teachers. And he said, oh, you know, come into school. We want to talk to you. So I thought I'd been naughty. <laughs> Here we go again. So I kind of went in to see him and I, I was met by a teacher called Mr. Reader. And he kind of took me aside and he kind of said, look, you know, what are you going to do when you leave? I, said, I don't know, sir. He said, well, look, we've been talking in the staff room and we think you should be an actor. And that was my eureka moment. I went, whoa, plot twist. 
you know, <laughs> I okay. And it just lit me up. I was just so inspired by that and sort of immediately started auditioning for youth centres and Birmingham Youth Theatre. They said no. And then I auditioned for the National Youth Theatre and they said yes. Came down to London and did a couple of weeks at the National Youth Theatre. It was great. Met people that were like me who could improvise and make me laugh. And that's why I love actors. Actors are such, most of them, <laughs> such, <laughs> uh, such imaginative people. And, and generally with actors, there's no protection. The kind of, the protective gate comes down because you just have to get to know each other. Yeah. And from then on, it was sort of, um, that's what I want to do. It's, it's, it's really quite lovely that you were told to do that and follow that sort of pathway because I think for a lot of people and a lot of people that we've had on this podcast, they've, they weren't steered. They were kind of said, go, no, get a profession, get a job mm. and not actually go and chase your dreams and, and take on this sort of world of entertainment and the arts. Um, I, I went to a university career advisor and I've sat in there for a good 40 minutes describing my passions and thinking at the end, she's going to say, this is what you were meant to do. And she just went, I've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a voyage of discovery trying to find wow. find that pathway. But I'm, I'm very pleased I'm here with you. You mentioned that first plot twist, that first Eureka moment. Mm. What would be for you the ultimate plot twist in your life so far? My breakdown. You know, that was a big, big plot twist. Didn't expect that. Didn't see that coming. You're 23? 23 years old, coming out of drama school. And I guess that night, that early, I talk about, I talked earlier about the innocence and naivety that I had. I think that I came a cropper as a result of that naivety. Coming into the real world was a lot more complex and complicated than I imagined. Wasn't really ready for the politics of real life. Wasn't really ready for the sharp objects that real life presents. Yeah, found myself losing my mind and having a breakdown. What was the first stage of what you thought something doesn't feel quite right here? Because you were performing, you were working, and at what point did you actually think something just doesn't seem to be adding up in my mind and how I'm processing, how I'm thinking? I mean, that's the weird thing about psychosis, which is what I fell prey to, is that initially it's actually quite buzzy, quite exciting, because your brain is working in a different way, maybe not be mm. sleeping, so you're sort of... You know, you're not sleeping, you're staying up late at night and your your brain's sort of working in overtime. I always remember being on stage at the Derby Playhouse. It was doing a Joe Orton comedy. It was, it was a really, I mean, it's a funny play. It's a really dark, funny play. I was playing Sloane, who's very mischievous, very Machiavellian, bisexual murderer. <laughs> and I was loving it, absolutely loving it. <laughs> but I always remember... There was this, a review in the local black press which really attacked me for taking the role and kind of said, Mr. Hale should be careful of the roles he chooses because it's almost like he's letting the side down, choosing these um, negative characters. It really set me off thinking, fuck that, you know, I, I play what I yeah. want. I do what I want. But at the end of this little review, this reviewer said, you know, people should demonstrate their displeasure Black people who go to see should demonstrate their displeasure and walk out of the show. Wow. A couple of days after that, reading that, at the start of the second act, Sloane has this very dark monologue downstage. And I just noticed out of the corner of my eye, these two black people get up and this kind of 
kerfuffle in the audience. And as I sort of flicked my eyes out, I could see them walking out. And for the next couple of nights, every time I did that monologue, which is dark, generally black members of the audience walked out. It started really getting under my skin. Yeah, you get agitated. I always remember getting quite angry about it. And then I started sort of playing for it, almost sort of pushing my performance to be as dark as possible so that they would purposely walk. And then they, when they did walk out, I'd sort of encompass that walking out into my performance, you know, and sort of start gesturing about people walking out. And that sort of precipitated a sort of mania, as it were, because mm. I was like, I don't care. I'm going to be as offensive as I can. <laughs> and it really put a fire in me. It was great, dangerously exciting. But um, I remember one night the stage manager took me came up to me off stage and went, you were on fire tonight. I said, what do you mean? He said, you took seven minutes off the show. That's a long time, yeah. It's a long time. <laughs> I guess that was the first I felt that, but as I say, it was it was exciting. As I say, the early stages of psychosis can be quite, quite buzzy. You're very hyper and it was actually quite seductive. Do you think that being on stage almost was a catalyst, an accelerator in it, in it happening? Because there is that sort of excitement of going onto stage and the dopamines and, and yeah, so on. Yeah, I think it probably was. It was like, I know I'm not, I could feel a buzz. I was really on, I felt like I'm, I'm onto something here. You know, I, I'm, you know like if I can control this, this is going to be really exciting. You channel it, yeah. And so that's what I tried to do was try to channel it, but you can't, you can't channel, you can't channel something like that. Uh, some some people do. I know. I, I've met, you know, I've done quite a lot of work on psychosis over the last couple of years, and there are many people who live with bouts of mania, and just they know when they're manic, they'll just enjoy it, but it might be followed by a crash, and when that crash comes, they'll just take themselves out and you know maybe withdraw for a couple of weeks, close the curtains, and and not answer the door. But mine was just a steady rise of energy, and which eventually sort of engulfed me what was the turning point for you because acting almost in a way gets you out of psychosis in a way is that right is that a fair thing to say that where you're you're in hospital and actually you've got to start showing that you you can act and behave in perhaps a more sort of normal manner so you think i'll act my way out of this sort of that's exactly right i, I sort of knew the second time I, I was sectioned in london and that was a real, uh, you know, it was a really awful night of hearing the voice of Martin Luther King in my head, explaining this really convoluted, ethereal, waking dream that I was having. It was just bizarre. And that, that's part of these, what the hallucinations? Yeah, I guess. hallucinations, and uh, you know, you, you can. Be, uh, one of the aspects of psychosis is, that, you know, many, many people hear voices, so you hallucinate, you see things. I believe things that aren't real uh, because you start losing control of your senses. As I say, this particular night, Martin Luther King appeared in my head saying that, you know, the moment he'd been shot, all of reality had become his dream. And his famous speech, I have a dream. He said, you are living my dream. So I'm speaking to you as the dreamer of the dream. And you have to do this one thing for me tonight. It has to be tonight. You're going to cl powerful. close the gap between good and evil. It was extraordinary. I'm sobbing oh. in my bedroom thinking, I'm part of this extraordinary global battle of good and evil. Just extraordinary. And his voice was booming in my head. And I remember just looking around the room thinking, where is it coming from? And it was real. 
it felt very real, extraordinary. So I did, got up and did everything he told me to do and walked to Camden, then got exhausted, got, then got arrested, ended up in a police cell, got out of the cell, went home with just, I remember waking up next morning, with just deathly silence in my head, no voices, and I actually didn't know who I was. I was really confused. Luckily, because I went to court in the morning, came out of the courtroom, and this lady who was in court, thank God she was there. You talk about angels, you know, kind of coming to save you. She just took my hand and she said, are you okay, son? And I went, I have no idea what's happening. She said, you look very confused. Said, Where do you live? And I couldn't remember. And then she said, what tube do you get? And I said, a Highbury Lisington. And she reached into a purse, she gave me 10 pounds. And she said, I'm gonna flag you down a cab and I'm gonna put you in a cab and send you to Highbury Lisington. So she did that. I got in the cab. I got out. How kind. I, I, exactly. I mean, what a, a, a wonderful thing to do. And I got home, found my house, and just went straight to bed. I was exhausted. And then I kind of kept hearing these stones at my window. And I thought, well, shit, here's the voices again. And it was all my mates who had been out looking for me all night. That's when they said, look, you, we've got to take you to Birmingham. So the idea, they phoned my mom. They said, look, he's not well. We were really worried about him, so you know we're going to drive him up to Birmingham. So they put me in the back of the car, and then I was like passing out. They were really scared. They thought I was dying. I said I was dying. So they drove me to Whittington Hospital, mm. where I jumped out of the car, ran into the hospital, screaming at the top of my voice. Six policemen with riot shields and <laughs> and riot gear kettled me, got me into a room and sat on me. And I had what's called an emergency tranquilization, which is where they literally sit on you and inject you full oh of uh, drugs, which knocked me out. It took me two hours to kind of lose consciousness. And that was the first time I was sectioned. Gosh. You, you've probably heard this before, and forgive me. I don't know whether it's perhaps a stigma with mental health, but... I look at you and I think of David Estes. I think of the, some of the, the characters that you played, strong characters, mm. you know, and yeah, a, a mental strength to them. And I think David Harewood, surely not the actor, would, 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 it's hard to imagine that this would have happened to you. I don't know why that is, but I imagine you've heard that a few times. Well, you know, it happened to my dad. And I would, my dad was a really strong man and I would never have, would never have put my dad but I think uh, that's the stigma, isn't it, of mental health, isn't there, in a way, that you kind of put people in these brackets. Yeah, you just don't think it's going to happen to them. And, yeah. you know, making the documentary that I did a couple of years ago, just the number of people who came up to me once it went out and were like, thank you for doing that, because I've never, you know, it happened to our dad and we'd never spoken about it. It happened to my brother and I've been ashamed of it. But the fact that you, this successful actor... You know, it's made me feel less ashamed of it. That's one thing I'm really most proud about, is that it's taken a little bit of the stigma away from mental oh, absolutely. health, particularly psychosis, because it just happens to... It's so common. Mm. The book is entitled, you know, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, a memoir of breakdown and recovery. And I think the recovery is... It's quite extraordinary. Well, the recovery enabled me to play David Estes and all these strong characters. It's the recovery where I got the strength because getting out of a mental institution 
and putting my career back on track is probably the most amazing thing I've ever done. It's pretty badass, David. Well, there's a bit of this given me a, there's a fearlessness. It's given me a fearlessness, particularly yeah. since making the documentary and writing the book. It's made me realise that that's where that fearlessness has come from. Most people never cross the line between mad, sanity and madness. Most people might go up to it, but they'll never cross it. I've crossed mm. it twice. So I feel in my mind that I know where that line is. And anything up to that line I know is really exciting. <laughs> anything over that line is very dangerous. But I've, mm. I've lived my career in that area of danger because I push myself and I love to be challenged. I love to be play David Estes. Sure, I'll do that. I had never done an American accent before in my life. I had 16 days between getting the part and playing the character. Is that all? Yeah, because wow. the pilot came just like that and you know, you, you're in. And I was on a plane and I was like, yeah, sure. But nerves, yes, but I saw it as a challenge. And throughout the course of first week of filming I, mean, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing but but somehow I got this character shaped and people were like who the fuck who's that you know and it was a great that's another plot twist you know the weekend I got Homeland I was down to my last 80 quid I was done 20 year career in England had really left me with nothing I was you know 32 years old you know, there were a lot of other black actors on the scene. I was sort of on the scrappy. I was done. And luckily I'd had, you know, my agent had procured me an American agent, an American representation. And you know, they just said, this is a great script. Put yourself on tape for it. And I did and got this character Homeland, which literally turned my life around. Turned my life around. Mm. And took me to America. And here I am 10 years later having done Homeland and Supergirl and Selfie, a couple of movies, been directing a couple of movies. My career is uh, totally oh, turned around. Want. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Going back to, I suppose, what, everything that preceded that, and the fact, the fact that you talk about it, and I'm very passionate about mental health and I've mm. had bouts of anxiety and moments where I felt pretty low. So to have somebody like yourself talk about it so openly and so so raw at times is, I mm. think, it's, it's truly refreshing. You know, to be that vulnerable and open up, I think, is, is particularly for men as well in this day and age, I think is something that's really important. And I suppose because of that, you, you're probably now a bit of an ambassador for mental health. Mm. Do you live your life a certain way now so that you can uh, keep it? Because uh, for me, like, I, like, I need to make sure that I'm balanced, that I'm I'm sleeping well, that I'm... You know, I've got a good balance between my fitness, my work, and, and not trying to go too much on one thing. Do you try and approach life in a certain way? Yeah, I guess so. I think the main difference, I'd say pre-documentary and book, post-documentary and book, has just been a general level of honesty about, you know, having stripped myself bare and just sort of, just literally revealed, revealed everything to everybody, which I was really scared about. Really scared. I didn't watch the documentary when it came out. I thought I'd ruined my career. And I was, you know, I, I thought I was just going to be a little bit of a laughing stock. But um, the morning after, I just, as I said, I was really blown away by people's reaction. You know, I, and I take my dog for a walk every morning. That, that, that's also in, incorporates part of my well-being. Just that hour of walking the dog. Just me and Love him. That. It's great. Just wonderful start to the day of a bit of fresh air and a mosey across the tooting common 
you know, I love it. It's a great way to begin the day. But I, I remember the morning after the dark, doing that walk, I couldn't go two minutes without somebody stopping me and literally saying, oh, my God, thank you. That happened to my dad. That happened to my mom. That happened to my brother. That happened to my uncle. And each time I'd be sobbing because it's I, was, I felt quite raw. I didn't expect yeah. to be... Because normally when you're on the telly or whatever, people sort of tend to leave you alone. I was that guy off the telly. So, you know, people leave you alone. But there was this, that was gone. And yeah. there was just, I need to speak to that man. There was an honesty about it, about the interaction. Yeah, and a I relatability. Love, uh, a relatability. Yeah. And I love, uh, if, any, if anything, that's what I'm most proud, I'm not say proud of, but that's what I noticed most about pre and post dark is that I feel quite free. I guess once mm. you've run naked through the village, you don't really care. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. I, I, and I, I, yes. I, I've sort of, oh, okay, I've done that. And it's yeah. given, it's really given me a freedom and an ease with myself that I never had before. That's the nugget that I think I... I saw that with the comments online. A lot of people, I think in a lot of interviews that you've done where you've been talking about this and so many people were saying, oh, my brother has, has had psychosis and this just is so heartwarming to hear somebody like David talk about it. So I suppose it's the same thing. Good for mm. you. I want to very quickly talk about Supergirl before talking about plot twist person. Mm -hmm. This must have been, uh, I mean, a great series, but it must have been really nice for you to actually play a character. Was it over 120 episodes you, mm. you did as as John Jones? Like that's a that's a long stint to play a character. Do you enjoy that being able to get to grips with somebody like that? Yeah, look, look you know, I'm not going to lie. Like I said, you know, as I said, I was skint when I when I went <laughs> skint, and so the opportunity to play a character for a long period of time and to have a regular paycheck and regular work, great cast, really good people. Mm. And as I said, I learned to direct. By the end of the series, I was directing a couple of episodes a year. So it was a really wonderful experience. And finally, after 30 years, it sort of put me in a position where I, I can say no to gigs that I don't want to do. And I think prior to doing Homeland, God, I was desperate. I mean, I was, you know, should I be doing Strictly? What's the, should I do Strictly? Can I get, get the pink spandex on? Because it's very difficult to have a career with longevity in this country. Very difficult of course, to yeah. have that career. And, and if you want to maintain that level of integrity in your work, it's even more difficult because at some point, you know, whether you have kids or whether you get married or buy a house, you know, you're going to have to face the reality of, of mm. working in a profession where the phone doesn't always ring. And as I say, for me, in my late 20s, early 30s, it, it stopped ringing. So for me to, I loved doing Supergirl. It was great. It was a great company, a great character. You know, I, I never knew anything about the character, but you know, th they saw the pilot. And I wasn't originally playing Martian Manhunter, but when they saw the pilot, I remember that apparently there was somebody, it was the head of DC Comics, Jeff Johns, who was sitting there and he looked at the pilot and he went, he'd make a great Martian Manhunter. And they sort of looked at each other and went, let's fucking do it, you know? <laughs> so after the pilot was shot, I was doing the night manager in Morocco. And my agent, American agent, rang me up and said, so yeah, uh, they're going to change your character when they go to the series. I was like, what? So yeah, they're going to change your character to something else. I was like, well, I don't understand. And they said, well, they're not going to tell you, but apparently it's, it's pretty cool. When I got back to shoot the show, they presented me with this little green figure. 
and said, you're, you know, you're, we're going to make you the Martian Manhunter. And went home with a whole bunch of comics and read the Martian Manhunter. It was great character. It was a really exciting, Epic. Fa- fabulous outfit. So yeah, I got to play a, <laughs> got to play a superhero. So it was, it was all good fun. Not everyone can say that. That's pretty cool. I want to come on to another plot twist question, plot twist person. You mentioned that very kind lady that gave you £10 to get the cab. But who would stand out as a, perhaps an unexpected source of inspiration for you? Plot twist person, perhaps. Lawrence Fishburne. I worked with uh, Lawrence... Great name. Worked with Lawrence Fishburne on a gig in South Africa. He played Madiba. I played Walter Sisulu. I always remember I was in South Africa with him when the news came that Supergirl was going to series. And I was like, nah, I don't want to do it. Nah, Supergirl, it's, I don't know. And he just said, I remember we were, he took me out for dinner and just explained why I should do it. He said, it'd be a really good thing for you to do. Regular face on American television, regular, you know, you'd be really in, good with the studios gives you that financial security and he said that is the basis of your choices because once you have that stability that financial security you can make choices and he was so right so right because here I am six years since taking the gig Mm. and I'm now in London and you know I get sent scripts and they say oh yeah we'd really like David to do this script and you read it and you're like Turning the fucking pages, like, where the fuck's my cat? It's like two lines at the end of episode two. We think, nah, them days are done. I don't need to do that. Whereas, as I say, prior to, there was a time when I just, I needed to pay the rent. You know, you need to pay the mortgage. I'm fortunate now that I'm not worried about that anymore. And maybe it's also, maybe it's a working class thing in me as well, that saying no is a really like, oh, can't say no. It's work. Whereas now I say no more than I say yes because um, I have a choice. You know, I'll read it and I'll go, it's not for me. You know, it's, I'll let that go for somebody else. I remember working with a great American actor. I was at the National doing Othello. And he's one of those faces, I don't, know, I don't know his name, but he's just one of those faces that's been in loads of movies. And he was in a Sam West play at the National. A really grizzled old guy. And I came off stage at the Nash and I, went to the bar, it was kind of empty, and I recognised him and I thought, oh, I know that guy. And I kind of bought the pint and I went, do you mind if I sit and chat? And he went, yeah, come on over. And we just ended up having this great, and he could, I think he could tell I was a little bit down. And he said to me, he said, look son, he said, no career does that. None, no career just keeps going it's up. Not a trajectory, up. Yeah. just goes down and up, down and up. It's just modulates. He said the important thing is is to be ready for the downtimes, and to just keep learning. And I really t- took that to heart because there will come times in you in any, anybody's career when you're just not working, and it's important to sort of to stay strong and not fold and because it's I think failure is as much a part of this business as success Mm. it's the work you do in the downtimes that uh, will really make you appreciate the uptimes it's not a jolly it's an undulating my my, my, 30 years 30 years man I've been doing this now maybe 33 years and I would say half of that has been tough times 
Tough I say, I say we want 30 more, David. That's the... I'm, listen, dude, I'm in the gym. I'm keeping fit. I'm, you know, I say I got all Dude, these, you're looking well. You're looking well. I mean, I, I hear about fly. you uh, learning to snowboard in 20 minutes at the age of 55. Oh, this man, is, that's uh, great. Absolutely great. You know? I've always wanted to snowboard. All, just think the gear is so cool. You know, Supergirl in Vancouver, you got Whistler, yeah, which is, you know, a, a, you know, where the Winter Olympics was. And one of the crew, I, I love working. I love crews. I'm generally on the set. I'm sometimes more closer to the crew than I am to the actors. I don't know why, but I, I just love the camera Some teams, like the great characters. sound crew. I love them. And the lighting guy's gotten really well with the lighting guy. And he uh, turns out he's a snowboard wizard. He said, I'll take you up to Whistler. I went, would you? He went, yeah. He said, I'll teach you how to snowboard. <laughs> Fucking great. Went out, bought some gear, and literally, because I, I have an electric skateboard, and it's the same sort of heel-toe, heel-toe yeah. motion. So it was kind of pretty easy for me to pick it up. And then within about 20 minutes, I was sort of carving. <laughs> he was like, he said, you like to go fast, and then you crash quite heavy. But again, because I'm a goalkeeper, because I'm a play sports, I sort of knew how to roll. I sort of knew how to take the knocks. Yeah. So I, I was like, I'm loving it. I love the speed. And then I will roll and crash and burn. And uh, <laughs> after about 20 minutes, I was literally carving down this mountain. And he, he was like, this is great. So like the next day I was doing you know, blues and reds and greens. Oh, wow. <laughs> Within a month I was doing, I was literally at the top of Whistler you know, making my way down. Yeah. Uh, it's epic. just fantastic. Just yeah. fantastic. I'll never forget it. Never forget Perk, it. Perks of the job, location. Yeah. 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 Mission there, obviously, about passions outside of work. What else? I mean, obviously, a bit of an adrenaline junkie, but mm. what sort of things in your spare time, aside from that and walking the dog, that... Well, I've been you? writing, you know. I've found a passion in writing recently. Uh, really enjoyed my writing my book. And... Is that in lockdown? Because I feel like a lot of people in lockdown have kind of explored that. Yeah, it was a lockdown book, which was finished during the last season of Supergirl. And that's gone down really well. Been very proud of that. Directing has been great in, in a, a real passion that I've uh, discovered. And I'll be make, directing a film, hopefully in August. And then... Well, any hints? Any... any, any uh... Yeah, it's, it's a kind of biopic movie of uh, uh, Chris Eubanks and Nigel Benn. So it's kind of about their right oh, wow. about their rivalry and it's a really fascinating story and kind of digs oh, that'd into be, that'd be intense. That'd really be amazing. digs into territory that most similar similar territory that my, my book digs into. Growing up in this late sixties, seventies England and what the impact that, that has had on that generation. That's sort of me. You know, I I think I get more of a I get more of a Jones these days playing with my garden tools than I do smoking <laughs> weed. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I, appliances. I love. I know it's it's nice to be home. So I'm sort of I'm in the garden fixing things up and painting. And I literally haven't haven't been home for like nine years. So it's really nice to to be here and put a fresh coat here and and uh, get things working. So it's nice to be sort of DIY dad. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned about writing in, in your your book uh, that was released at the end of last year. That must mm. have been quite a I guess like the documentary actually must have been quite an emotional experience to kind of go through that. And it's, it's, it's been described as very raw and very honest. And a lot of people have really praised you for that. It's probably the most raw or honest thing I've ever done. And 
I think when I did the documentary, uh, Psychosis and Me, which was a real shock to me, you know, I remember getting a, a call from the Royal College of Psychiatry, just out of blue. And they said, they said, you have done more for psychosis in one hour than we've been able to do in 20 years. And wow. he, he said, and I remember Mind, the charity Mind, contacted my agent and said, just want David to know that calls about psychosis rose 107% the night after the documentary went out. He said, now people know what it is, and now people are more familiar with it. And he said he's broken a major taboo, particularly as it a- normalizes it. Normalized it. Yeah. And uh, I was unaware that of any of that, but it cracked open a whole thing in me, which, as I say, I, I sort of, you know, rediscovering all that pain and racial pain and identity confusion, it kind of took me right back to that moment of my first breakdown. And I must admit, the reaction to the documentary really destabilized me. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for it. And I was gonna say, people were literally stopping me in the street and engaging me in conversation about it, which was very raw. And as I said, a lot of times I ended up literally sobbing with complete strangers who had had experience of it, whose fathers had had it, particularly black, a lot of black women stopped me and said, oh, my dad had it, or my, my mom had it. And, and then one girl stopped me and said her dad died being restrained. And that just opened up, it just, it was really emotional. But she just wanted to say thank you for talking about it. I sort of rushed back off to Vancouver and Supergirl to bury it, bury it again, because it was just too painful to sit with. But a couple of months after being in, in Vancouver, somebody asked me to write a book about it, write a book about my experiences, an, mm. an audio book actually initially. And it was only supposed to be 12,000 words. And I jotted down a few things and this person wrote back to me saying, this isn't an audiobook. This is a book, and you need to write it. And I was a little scared, and then a, an agent rang me up, a literary agent rang me up, and asked me to have a Zoom meeting. First of all, she was a black lady, which really surprised me. Natalie, her name is. And then behind her was this poster of uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Ralph Ellison famously wrote Invisible Man about his experiences as a black man in America feeling that he was invisible. And one of the things I kept saying when I was having my breakdown was that I think I'm invisible. And it just, I went, whoa, that really rings a bell. And the way she explained my experiences and with that poster in the background, it really sparked something in me. And I sent her all my writings and she said that you've got to write this book. And I sort of sat on it, I didn't know where to get in. And then lockdown happened. I remember this was the morning George Floyd was murdered. I was going to ask you, were you writing at the time that happened? That, that was the inspiration for me because yeah. I saw how all around the world were, there was this wave of revulsion and, and questioning of, of racism and, and ideas of racism. And in England, the conversation around race is always sort of, oh, it doesn't really happen here. That's an, yeah. that's an American thing. It does, we don't have racism here. We're tolerant. And I thought, that's not true. So I started writing and I wrote, my first chapter was called There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, which uh, 
was my experiences of growing up on the streets of Birmingham and having that said to me regularly every morning as you walk to school. Somebody would lean, wind the window down of their car and go, bigger, I know back in the union, you know, it was, that was a, a recurrent refrain when I was a kid. And, and then I wrote another chapter and I sent them both to Natalie, my agent, and she was like, whoa. She just said, keep going, this is dynamite. I just couldn't stop writing. And then I met my wonderful editor, Carol Tonkinson, and together we sort of came up with the title of this book, which is Maybe I Don't Belong Here, which is kind of how I felt as a kid, you know, with people telling you to go back home. This idea that I wasn't English. Where are you really from? You don't come from here. And I, I think that, that sort of, that was the sort of root and branch of my psychosis of not feeling complete. It was a really cathartic thing for me to, to write mm. and to re it's, it's ferociously honest to, to a point where I think most reviews would, would say that it triggered a lot of black people. I know a lot of black people said they had to put it down for a couple of days because they were like either really angry or saw aspects of themselves in it. So I'm really proud of it. And I'm proud that within the mental health community, it's been a great benefit because yes. it's touching upon subjects that probably previously nobody wanted to talk about, but the over-medication of black men. Why, are you, why do you over-medicate black, black men? And it's no other reason other than the fear. Fear of- but it's, but it's also, it hasn't been, I don't, I think prior to George Floyd, there's been an influx in education that's come out that previously wasn't quite there. That I, mm. for me, conversations. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah, but those wouldn't have happened, and it just would have been, perhaps it's naive or you could say ignorance on some part, but I, you wouldn't you just wouldn't have known. Exactly, and I and I think you know, unfortunately, I do think that in the country, the, the conversation around race, it has evolved, but it's 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 incredible how much of the language of that time has been weaponized, woke, weaponized, mm. to be a negative thing now. It's unfortunate that there are those who wish to tap down the really good work that was happening around that time of sort of just evolving our understanding of race and racism in this country. But, you know, that was the, my impetus for, for writing the book. How many young black men and women do you think in, from your generation probably went through similar experiences in terms of you know mental health battles because of the racism they experienced? Listen, I don't think it's my generation. I think it's a lot of people. There's a lot well, of yes. people. Well, yes, all generations. And, and I think, you know, when I screened my documentary here in Streatham, I don't know how they got there, but there was a number of young black, really young teenagers who were there watching it. I had a Q&A at the end of the film and at the end of the Q&A, there was a queue of these young black men. All of them were on the cusp or had experienced psychosis. And they were all asking me what they should do. And I was saying, try and get some help, go and see a doctor, speak to somebody about it. Just giving them honest advice. Uh, this guy told, said he, he woke up one morning in Scotland. He had no idea how he got there. No idea how he got there. Spent three days in Scotland, said he just coming in and out of consciousness, eventually got himself together, came back down to London. It's quite terrifying. And said he had, he said again, he said he saw my documentary and he said, that's, I said, that's when I realised it was psychosis. So I had no idea. So I think the doc and the book has been a, 
an, an important piece of information for, particularly for black men and for the black community, because as I said in the documentary, we are 10 times more likely to suffer mental ill health, four times more likely than white people to be sectioned. Now, now that's extraordinary, but there are certain, I, I think particular difficulties we face growing up in a European setting, uh, a setting that doesn't necessarily mm. reinforce our viewpoint. Mm. And I think if you're not careful, it, it can undermine your mental health over a period of time. If you're not careful and you're suffering these microaggressions, people saying, where do you really come from? You know, whether you have to straighten your hair to fit, lots of girls will say they have to straighten their hair to fit into the office culture or, or being the only black person you know, in the office, being the only black person on the team. Mm. And, you know, it's just all those little tiny microaggressions can lead to sort of an, an undoing of your mental health. So you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful in this society about, about that. Mm. And I think the book does a, a good job of highlighting that, not just to black people, but also to the, the wider British community. Absolutely. I was just going to ask on that, in terms of conversations post your book and, and I think everything that kind of evolved from what happened with George Floyd, mm. do you think that more conversations are taking place? Because I, I think from my perspective, if somebody said to me about talking about racism, I said, well, my heroes are African-American Muslim and I can't possibly be racist. But then you, you hear about sort of these instances that I wouldn't have had a clue. I would not have, but there, there hasn't been that education. Whereas now it feels like look at this, things are opening look up. Look at this. We, we talk, it was only last week, there was this girl Q, this case of this girl Q, who was a young black school girl, who the teacher thought she smelt of weed. So they called the police. And the police, between the police and the school, she was strip searched without the parents' consent, even though she was menstruating, they removed her sanitary towel, asked her to bend down and spread her. I mean, oh it's God. just extraordinary. Now, even the review said that there was racism was a factor because black children are considered adults for some reason. I just find it extraordinary that because she smelt of weed, they called the police on her. And then the police had the temerity to strip search her. I mean, it's a bit of weed. I mean, mm. now that's happening in 2022. This is a year after, two yeah. years after George Floyd. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so I think we've got a long way to go. We've oh, still got a long way to go. But I do think, thankfully, it has led to, particularly in our business, conversations around casting. So you, you know, you'll you'll get a lot more diversity in casting. Not not tremendous, but it's it's you know, it's, a lot of black actors are working. That that conversation it's happened in our business. A lot of black makeup artists are working. Suddenly, it's a conversation around black hair which it was never, when I was in the business, never a conversation. Now suddenly there'll be a conversation around barbers and getting your hair cut and what skin products do you want? What skin makeup do you need? So this is all as a result, all these conversations happened as a result, unfortunate result of a man losing his life. But mm. I, I think it's the ripple effect of those conversations has yes. forced a lot of conversations, whether it be boardrooms, whether it be, and I know this is true, you know, my brother-in-law works for a, you know, a very, very, he's a, works for a well-to-do bank. And there's a lot more diversity in their recruiting. 
whether it be men and women. So it sparked a conversation around diversity mm. that we can't simply just have one homogenous type. We can't just go for white men. And obviously there's been a kickback against that. You know, a lot of, a lot of white men, a lot of white directors, male directors in America suddenly aren't the first in the queue. They don't particularly like that. But they've been first in the queue literally since they were born. It's just a change in the dynamic. And I'd say... Can only be a good welcome thing. to the club, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. It could, it could be a good thing. Change is good for the business. I completely agree. Well, David, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for for, for coming on. Thank you. All about, um, no, it's, it really has been fantastic. And uh, good luck with all future projects. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's been great. Thank you for all the questions. I knew I like David Harewood, the staunch British actor who's had so much international success, whether it is David Estes in Homeland or the Martian Manhunter in Supergirl. But my goodness, I, <laughs> I didn't appreciate how much I'd like him as the man himself. He was heartwarming. He was charming. But with that, just a level of detail that was quite extraordinary about his experiences. And as he said himself, he wouldn't have been able to channel those strengths that you see on screen if he hadn't gone through those experiences. I think that makes me like him more. <laughs> and every so often with a plot twist, there's a story or an example of a random act of kindness. And that situation that he spoke about where the lady gives him £10 to get a taxi back to Highbury and Islington. I think it's almost examples like that that remind us that we need to be kind to each other, particularly in the context of, of mental health. That's really important. So on that note, let's all be a little bit kinder to each other. Let's be a little bit more like David Harewood. Well, there isn't much more to say other than definitely check out his book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, a memoir on race, identity, breakdown and recovery. It is extraordinary. Definitely worth a read. And Supergirl is his series, of course, series one to five streaming on now. That is definitely worth a watch. Big thank you again to David Harewood. What a plot twist. And we'll see you guys next week. Ciao. Oh, 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 oh.